0: Hi, dance friends, and welcome to the Dance Edit podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. And I'm Courtney Esquine. We are editors at Dance Media. And in today's episode, we will unpack the lawsuit alleging abusive behavior by a dance power couple that is sending big shockwaves through the community right now. We will talk about the critical work that choreographer Jaquelle Knight is doing to help BIPOC creators secure copyrights to their viral and commercial choreography. And we'll discuss what the dance world can learn from Simone Biles and the US gymnastics team. I mean, the short answer being a heck of a lot. But before we start today's episode, we have actually a request for you all. We are planning to do a few mailbag episodes in the coming months in which we'll discuss the dance world topics that listeners want to hear more about. So are there bigger picture issues you think we should dig into or dig further into? Do you have a kind of obscure dance obsession that you want us to shine a spotlight on? Or are there moments in dance history that you want to hear more about? I mean, anything goes really. So let us know, send us a message on Instagram at the dance edit or Twitter at dance underscore edit Our DMs are wide open. Or you can email me directly at m führer as Frank, U-H-R-E-R at dancemedia.com. And we also don't want you to forget that our premium audio interview series, The Dance Edit Extra, is about to drop its first official episode featuring the one and only James Whiteside. We are so close to launching. (laughs) Getting that debut episode will require subscribing to the separate Dance Edit Extra feed. So please do visit thedanceedit.com slash podcast to find out all about that. All right. Now it's time for our weekly dance headline rundown, which is not an especially long list, but every one of these items is like big news for sure and
1: starting on a bit of a low note uh last weekend nine people were injured by gunfire at the vault a dance studio in columbia south carolina the shooting is still under investigation and to our knowledge there's no word about what if any further connection there is to
0: the studio itself yeah we really don't have a whole lot of information about what actually happened but we will link to the coverage that is available in the show notes Uh, So last week, Actors Equity Association and the Broadway League reached an agreement mandating COVID vaccines for Broadway performers, backstage crew, and theater staff. And then the very next day, the League announced that actually, all 41 Broadway theaters in New York City will require vaccinations for audience members as well. And audience members will also have to wear masks, except in designated locations where eating and drinking will be allowed. All of these mandates extend through October of this year, and honestly, few. Like, <laughs> agreed. What a relief! <laughs>
1: well, and also, uh, New York City Ballet announced that they have uh, similar measures in place for their performances. They're requiring vaccinations. And then I also think under the new regulations that the New York State government just announced, that's going to be true of basically any performance venue mm-hmm. going forward. Vaccinations required, or you're not getting through the door.
0: It seems like it's going to be the new normal.
1: Uh, And the National Museum of Dance in Saratoga Springs, New York, has closed, as well as its affiliated School of the Arts. The facilities are being absorbed into Saratoga Performing Arts Center, and an announcement regarding future plans for them are expected to come later in the summer.
0: Yeah, the Albany Times Union did a story about this closure that was a little bit wild, like an attorney who's on the SPAC board and was on the museum's board previously, literally said, the museum doesn't exist anymore. But then the museum's operations manager said, oh, no, it still exists. It's not going anywhere. We're just figuring stuff out. So there's definitely some uncertainty here. And there were a number of quotes that were basically like, I don't know, ask someone else. Yeah. So, yeah. Puzzling. We'll link to that article, too, so that you can you can parse it out yourselves. Here's some much happier news. On Monday night, Valerie Alman, who started out as a dancer, won an Olympic gold medal as a discus thrower. And if you watched her Olympic performance, then you know how beautiful her port bras is. She actually traveled with the Pulse on tour as a teen before switching to track and field. Um, and in interviews, she said that discus throwing feels like dancing to her. She called it, quote, a second and a half dance that you do hundreds of times, which I thought was so great. Congratulations, Valerie.
1: Beautiful and poetic and wonderful. (laughs) This one's a bit of a doozy. Bolshoi ballet director Makar Vaziev has come under fire after remarks made in a recent interview that was published in English on Gramolano. In addition to dismissive remarks on the topic of sexual harassment in the dance world, he also waved away the continued use of blackface in the company's production of La Bayadere and made some deeply problematic comments about race in ballet, more broadly speaking. Uh, we've been hesitant to share this article and give him a bigger platform, but we are bringing it up now to point you instead to Teresa Roof Howard's excellent response on the Memoirs of Blacks in Ballet Instagram account, which is at M-O-B Ballet, and I'm sure will be linked in the episode description.
0: Yes, it absolutely will be. There actually, her response came in, in two parts, because I think after her initial response, some people were debating over the translation from the Russian, over whether he actually used the word blackface. but That sort of misses the point. We'll link to both of Teresa's responses in the show notes.
1: It was also heartening to see a number of uh, other dance organizations coming out sort of in solidarity against these remarks. Uh, Ballet Mm -hmm. Black in the UK was one, Sadler's Wells reposted what they said. So there's some traction behind like, hey, this is not okay, which is heartening to see.
0: Yeah. Okay, this is a roller coaster of a headline rundown. It really is. (laughs) Back to to more upbeat, forward-looking news now. Next March, Chicago Shakespeare Theater will present the debut of the Broadway-bound musical adaptation of The Notebook. The new production includes songs by Ingrid Michaelson, a book by playwright Becca Brunstetter, who, by the way, is also a writer for This Is Us, which feels exactly right.
1: Oh. Um,
0: And choreography by Katie Spellman, who was an associate choreographer on Broadway's Moulin Rouge. All of that seems to to bode well if this kind of musical is your cup of tea.
1: Well, and I also remember this being like announced that it was in the works, like what feels like forever ago. And so now (laughs) that news is reemerging about it, it's like, oh, right, this thing. Cool. (laughs) Curious to see what happens with it. For sure. And the Marfa Graham Dance Company announced its new season. It'll include new works by Andrea Miller and Hofesh Schechter, as well as a new version of Graham's Canticle for Innocent Comedians, led by Sonia Taya and featuring vignettes from Michaela Taylor, Yen Yu, Juliano Nunes, Christina and Shadé Elaine, and Jen Freeman, in addition to the remnants of Graham's original choreography and contributions from original cast member Robert Cohen, who passed away earlier this year. Uh, there are also, of course, Graham Classics on tap, and the company plans to tour stateside and to France, Germany, Turkey, Greece, and
0: China. I was especially struck by the two commissioned premieres. Think about the circle of influences happening in these premieres. So Both mm. Andrea Miller and Hofe Schechter danced with Batsheva in Tel Aviv. when it was directed by Ohad Naharin. Batsheva was co-founded by Martha Graham. Oh, had before becoming Batsheva's director, danced with the Graham Company for a bit. Now these two descendants of that tradition are coming to make work on Graham Dancers. That is kind of incredible.
1: Well, and I feel like like the Graham Company has just sort of been quietly over the last like decade or so just like doing these sort of premieres and pulling in people that at first glance, you're like, wait, why? And then you stop and think about it and you're like, oh, that's so smart. I can't wait yeah. to see what happens with this.
0: Yeah, totally. Six degrees of Martha Graham. My gosh. Or is it seven degrees? How many degrees of Kevin Bacon? Six I think degrees of Martha Graham. Okay, we're going to go with it. So in our first longer segment today, we're going to talk about the story that was actually the biggest headline of the week. And before we begin, just a heads up, this segment will include mentions of sexual assault and abuse. So please proceed with caution. Be gentle with yourselves. Skip ahead if you need to. Um, last Wednesday, a pair of professional dancers filed a lawsuit that accuses a former teacher who goes by several names, but who's called Mitchell Taylor Button in the suit. He's accused of sexually assaulting and abusing them. The man's wife, influencer and former Boston Ballet Principal Dusty Button, is not a defendant in the lawsuit, but she is described as a non-party co-conspirator who allegedly participated in some of the abuse. Unsurprisingly, this news was met with shock and outrage and sadness in the dance community. It should really go without saying, but we'll say it anyway, that we are not here to spread gossip or to imply that we have any kind of insider knowledge about this story. But we did want to get into what the lawsuit actually says, and then also to talk about some of the larger problems in dance culture that we've seen lead to this kind of abuse before.
1: So the suit was filed in the United States District Court in Nevada, and it claims that, quote, the buttons abuse their positions of power and prestige in the dance community to garner the loyalty and trust of young dancers, end quote, and that the couple would, quote, exploit those relationships to coerce sexual acts by means of force and fraud, end quote. There are two plaintiffs, one of them, Sage Humphreys, who is now a dancer with Boston Ballet, met the Buttons in 2016 when she was a member of Boston Ballet 2, and alleges that the couple sexually and verbally abused her, forced her to live with them, isolated her from her family, limited her electronic communications... The New York Times story goes into a little more detail that I won't necessarily get into right now. Um, And a second plaintiff, uh, Gina Minichino, alleges that several years prior to that, Mr. Button sexually assaulted her when she was 13 years old, and he was her 25-year-old dance instructor in Florida. The WBUR coverage also notes that Mitchell Taylor Button is accused of abusing at least five of his students while he was a dance instructor in Florida. And that he and uh, Dusty emotionally abused and molested two other young dancers, one of whom was 11 years old.
0: Uh okay. Yep. I mean, first of all, it's so heartbreaking that we keep getting stories like this coming out of the dance world. And the lawsuit explicitly connects these new allegations to a larger, quote, culture of harassment and abuse, unquote, throughout dance organizations, It's true. This is a structural problem. We've talked about this before on the podcast, how the studio environment creates these stark power imbalances between the dancers and the people at the front of the room by design. It's baked into it. Well, and also
1: because of the scarcity mentality that exists, the idea that, okay, well, if you're not willing to you know, do what it takes. There's 100 girls who are ready to take your place. Uh, Mm -hmm. Gina Minichino actually said in an interview with the New York Times regarding uh, Mr. Button, the whole game was to keep him happy, don't get him angry, or I was unworthy and I would lose my dance career.
0: Yeah, that quote, oh my gosh.
1: It just, it speaks to the grooming that because of the nature of dance training as it has existed, When it comes to predators, it sets up this culture where grooming like that can be waved away as being, Mm -hmm. oh, this is what it takes. And it's really unsafe.
0: Yeah. When your entire career is in the hands of just a few authority figures, that's so far from a typical teacher-student or boss-employer relationship. And then the inherently physical interactions of dance training and creation and rehearsal, which like blur boundaries in complicated ways add that to the mix the whole situation is just a tinderbox and i think i mean of course the hope is that raising awareness about the problem that the courage of these dancers who are coming forward will push dance to address these problems in its culture and to create better systems for preventing and reporting abuse i wanted to call back to chanel da silva's great story for dance magazine Mm. in which she actually talked about her own experiences with abuse but also suggested several ways that the dance community could help prevent that type of behavior in the future. And I have to admit, my cynical side wants to say, we've sounded this alarm so many times before and nothing has changed, like why would now be any different? But I mean, we're going to talk more about Simone Biles and the gymnastics team later. But hey, yeah, let's follow their example because they are proof positive that just because a community has a history of this kind of misconduct doesn't mean it can't evolve. It doesn't have to be this way.
1: And it really has to start with setting up systems that empower the dancers and empower the students and allow them to have like safe outlets to be able to speak up when something doesn't feel right. That is absolutely key. Because if the culture is shut up and take whatever is thrown at you, this mm-hmm. sort of thing can flourish under the surface. There has to be a culture that allows and empowers uh, dancers to be able to speak up. And yes, yes. Also, the way power is siloed should not be the way power is siloed. It just shouldn't be.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Retweet. All right. We could talk about this for several podcasts worth of material, but let's moving on to our next discussion segment. So we want to head back toward the light with a more hopeful story. And actually, I'm going to start with some context here. So a few months ago, we talked about how choreographer Jaqueline Knight, who's probably best known for his work with Beyonce and Megan Thee Stallion, but he's worked all over the industry. He's been working to help commercial choreographers copyright their dances, which is a huge deal. And then a few weeks ago, we talked about the Black TikTok strike in which Black creators have been refusing to create new dances for the app in an effort to secure the recognition and the compensation that they deserve for their work. Then this week, those two stories intersected. So we learned that Knight has partnered with Logitech to help 10 BIPOC artists, including the creators of several viral TikTok dances, secure copyrights for their choreography. And he recently presented six of those artists with lab annotations of their dances, which is the first step towards securing copyright. And I love this story for many reasons, not least among them the fact that there are now lab annotations of TikTok dances out there in the universe. I could not be happier about that. That is so fantastic. I kind of want that as like a piece of artwork. Yes, absolutely. I would hang that on my wall.
1: (laughs) So I was personally a little bit curious about how this whole company would work and function. And Variety Mm -hmm. did like a nice nutshell little explainer. So the company is called Night Choreography and Music Publishing Inc., uh, and the idea is that it will operate in the same way that a music publisher does, where it brokers licensing deals, protects intellectual property. Except rather than copywriting music, uh, it will oversee the rights to night dance moves, as well as representing rights for a diverse range of choreographers and creatives across genres and mediums. Uh, I believe the quote is acting as their strategic partner in copyright licensing and beyond, as they change the landscape of the protections for choreographers, creatives, and artists in the commercial music industry. Which, hello, this is stuff we have been talking about. This needs mm-hmm. to happen. This needs to exist for so long. And look, this is an actionable way that this can happen.
0: Yeah, it's really happening. So the, here are the six creators announced so far in this initiative. One, Kiara Wilson, who created the Savage Dance to Megan Thee Stallion song. That dance is going to be copyrighted. The second is Yang Deji, creator of the Woe Dance. Full Out, Courtland, their choreography for Doja Cat say so for the 2020 Billboard Music Awards performance will be copyrighted. The Nene Twins' Savage Remix dance, the dance to Megan Thee Stallion song, will be copyrighted. Chloe Arnold's Salute a Legend choreography for the Syncopated Ladies is on the list, and then Maya Johnson and Chris Cotter, who made the Up dance to Cardi B's song, will also be getting a copyright. That's quite a list.
1: It, this just makes my heart happy.
0: Yeah. And You know, this process is so insanely complicated. Like there mm-hmm. was a piece in the conversation, I think it was in the conversation a couple weeks ago, Jill Vastbinder, who's a dance professor at the University of Maryland, connected the stealing of Black creators' choreography on TikTok to this much longer history of Black dancers' work getting mm-hmm. co-opted for profit. And to tell that history, she actually broke down the whole story of how dance copyright first came to be, how it works. And then at the end, she straight up asked, like, hey, is copywriting the answer to this problem on TikTok specifically?
1: Which I think is another thing that we have been questioning on this podcast as well, because copyright law in a lot of ways in terms of copywriting dance is like a rather flawed system. Mm -hmm. Due to the complexity and the way that the documentation is required and also, again, copyright law I do not think has really caught up with the degree to which social media and apps like TikTok are rapidly changing the landscape in terms of intellectual property, how it is shared and how it is utilized.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so actually Vassbender ended up recommending rather than copywriting something like open source licensing or creative commons licensing instead, which those are systems that require attribution, but would leave space for adjusting and copying and remixing in the ways that tend to happen on digital platforms. So I don't say this to downplay Jaquel's accomplishments here at all. I mean, especially for these like essentially ubiquitous, like super viral dances and for commercial choreography, which that's a totally different game. Copyright, I think, can be a really useful tool But wow, this is complicated. And I think it's
1: also worth noting that because of the way copyright works, you don't really copyright like a singular move. The idea is it is a piece of choreography to a specific Mm -hmm. like piece of music and specific movements. Like that's why love annotation is like such a key part of it is because it Mm -hmm. shows those relationships. Yeah. It's thorny. It's really thorny. It's very
0: thorny. It's very thorny. But I'm super excited to see where Jaquel and his foundation are going to go because... Oh, he's, it's just the coolest. It's just the coolest. He's doing the damn thing. He's doing the damn thing. All right. So last but absolutely not least today, we want to talk about Simone Biles, just like pretty much the whole rest of the world is right now. Um, more specifically, we want to talk about a great piece that dance artist Bradford Chin wrote for Dance Magazine about what the dance world can learn from, first of all, Biles' decision to take herself out of several Olympic events last week, and also from the team's response to her decision. And there are, of course, all kinds of parallels between the worlds of dance and competitive sports and especially gymnastics. And this idea that self-care is incompatible with like heroic self-sacrifice for the group is one especially harmful idea that we see in both fields. But at the Olympics, Biles and her teammates proved that actually a team effort does not have to be and in fact should never be detrimental to the health of any individual
1: Absolutely. And I think some of the backlash initially to Simone's uh, decision to pull out of those events had to do with the fact that it wasn't like she had broken an ankle on the vault. She was having issues locating herself in space, which when it comes down to it is a perception issue, something that you can point to as, oh, well, that's just all in your head. You should be fine. Which is deeply dangerous. And uh, I noticed a lot of people pointing out like, yo, she had broken her ankle. No one would be saying that. Mm -hmm. But overwhelmingly, I know I saw people in support of Simone's decision because it was a much safer decision. And then also looking at the way that her team stepped up and filled in the gaps and was supporting her and taking care of her and taking care of each other. And I would love to read a quote from Bradford Chen's piece because I think it really gets at the crux of this. Quote, My entire career has been one gigantic team effort. I owe everything to collaboration, mutual aid, and the kindness and generosity of others. But here's the thing. The most important part of a team effort is supporting a teammate when they're down. A team effort should not be detrimental to your health, physical, mental, or emotional, regardless of whether you are dispensing or receiving aid. And you should never feel shame for needing support. End mm-hmm. quote. That's it.
0: There it is. I mean, yeah, everybody went immediately to carry Strug. With the Simone Biles thing, Mm. which how many stories have we heard about the dance version of Carrie Strug, the dancer who seriously injures herself on stage and keeps going anyway and is the hero of the show for doing so? Like, let's just stop lionizing that kind of behavior, for starters. And then also, I, I... Really like that Bradford pointed out that the stakes feel so high in dance because of here it is again that scarcity mindset. Mm-hmm. This idea that you should never prioritize your own health if it might jeopardize like a precious performance opportunity because your dance years are limited and dance resources are limited and you have to hold on to whatever's offered to you with every ounce of strength that you have. Like when you're conditioned to think that way. Every performance feels like the Olympics. Yeah, and then the elephant in the room,
1: which is, well, if I say I can't do this, does that Mm -hmm. communicate the message that I'm not tough enough to handle it, that I'm not capable of handling it? Mm -hmm. If I step away from this opportunity, will I not get another opportunity handed to me by the people who are making these decisions? Because they're going to perceive my taking care of myself as being too weak, too fragile, incapable of doing the work.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and the piece points out that if we can, rather than put the burden of self-care on the individual, if we can shift that to the collective, we can make it a collective responsibility. First of all, that can actually make us better artists. That's exactly the kind of creative mm-hmm. thinking that dancers are really good at, figuring out that kind of scenario. And then more importantly, if we can successfully build that kind of culture of, of trust That will help us with a myriad of problems, including dance's issues with abuse, which we discussed earlier, including its problems with inclusivity and equity. Like collective trust is just a great foundation on which to build a healthy dance culture.
1: Absolutely. And I think those relationships that can exist in a dance studio, whenever you have that trust and that ability to be vulnerable with each other. And the ability to say like, hey, I need some extra help right now and trust that the other people aren't going to take advantage of that, but show up for you, that can be some of the most powerful relationships in an artist's life. And that Mm -hmm. can also just create, I mean, imagine what kind of work can be created in that environment Mm -hmm. where you're not in the back of your head, like having to calculate constantly and having to protect yourself and act from a place of fear that that would be huge that would be game-changing
0: yeah it really would be a different world if there were more spaces like that here's hoping okay that is our episode this week thanks everyone for joining us we will be back next week for more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world keep learning keep advocating and keep dancing mind how you go friends The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Amy Brandt, Courtney Esquine, Margaret Fuhrer, and Lydia Murray. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those footfall sounds. Find out more about the Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com.